Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing with our survey, a review of the book of Acts, and Mark is going to be starting in chapter 9. We're getting an overview of the whole book of Acts and all the implications of this that we can use in our personal life and spiritual life, and we'd like to open with a word of prayer. Lord, thanks for this time to study uh, your word. We appreciate Mark and all his diligence here with this very thought-provoking series that he has done, and we thank you for this, and bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Welcome back, Mark. Yes, it's good to be with you all again. We are trying to summarize and review uh, what we have been looking at in the book of Acts over the past uh, year or more, and we uh, finished up with the phenomenally exciting story of the Ethiopian nobleman who was both a foreigner and a eunuch trying to be part of the nation of Israel and, of course, running into all types of problems due to his various issues. And Philip clears that up because he tells him the new age is dawning in which none of that will matter. So we want to pick up at that point in chapter 9 and just hit some of the high points that we have talked about that are notably different from most scholars and religious authorities of our present time. In Acts 9, we are introduced to Saul of Tarsus, who will become the chief character in the second half of the book of Acts. The term, the way, is used to describe the Christians whom Saul is persecuting, it's, all, it's used again in uh, Acts 22, and this is a quote from Isaiah 35, talking about make straight the way of the Lord. All scholars admit that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this prophecy and others, and significantly, no one claims that John the Baptist created a road construction company in order to physically fulfill this prophecy to make straight the way of the Lord and level the mountains and so on and so forth. Uh, This is only significant because our dispensational and Zionist friends insist that all of the promises made to Israel 
must be fulfilled physically. And here is a clear example of one that was not. Uh, so it's just a little key piece of ammunition for you to uh, recall should you find yourself doing a vigil in front of one of these churches and engaging in a discussion with somebody who makes that claim that these prophecies are all to be fulfilled physically. In Acts 10, 11, and 12, we see the plan Christ clearly laid out back in Acts 1, verse 8, of how the gospel was to progress through the world from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. We see the great leap being uh, readied, uh, or all things being prepared for this great leap beyond the borders of Samaria and Judea and Galilee to go to the ends of the earth. We meet Saul, as already mentioned, and he is visited by the Lord Jesus directly on the road to Damascus and goes into uh, three days of mourning for everything he held dear, which would basically be the entire doctrine and teaching of the Pharisees in which group he had been brought up as a star pupil. But he is in mourning and he, have to, he has to give up the physical interpretation of the promises made to Israel once he realizes that Jesus was the Messiah and yet was not going to rule as a physical king. He had to give up that concept that was near and dear to the Pharisees, just as it is near and dear to the dispensational and Zionist communities today. He gave that up, and then he's kind of put on the back burner there uh, as the story progresses, getting ready for him to be launched on stage. We have to go back and get Peter, who stayed uh, down near the coast after imparting miraculous gifts to the Samaritan people. He stays down there, and he is called to go up and share the gospel with the household of Cornelius. He opens his discourse by saying, you know it is not right for me to be here, which was not exactly a part of the law of Moses, but by the time you added all the regulations of the Pharisees, it was virtually impossible for a Judean to enter the house of a Greek person, a Gentile, any foreigner, any non-Judean person, because the hospitality of, of the place and the time demanded sharing food, and there was no way that a Judean could share food with a Gentile without violating the law of Moses or the rules and regulations of the Pharisees that had been added to the law. And so Peter goes into this knowing that it's not even right for him to be inside Cornelius' house, and yet he witnesses as they hear and believe the gospel, Peter witnesses miraculous outpouring of the Spirit of God upon the entire household. Peter's Judean friends who are with him are absolutely shocked. No doubt Peter was as well, because they all knew that the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit was a promise to Israel for her last days. 
and we had gone back and looked at a number of prophecies that predicted that. And again, the way we've looked at the book of Acts, it's so important to note that we have gone back and picked up all of the objections of dispensationalism to the traditional end times views of the other denominations or churches, which for the most part completely ignore the obvious fact that the end time promises in the Bible were given to old covenant Israel, not to some entity known as the church. And a dispensationalist can confidently debate with or argue with or prove that the views of most other churches and denominations are unbiblical. And what we have tried to do as we went through the book of Acts is to say, yes, the dispensationalists are correct when they say these promises were given to Old Covenant Israel. However, what we've pointed out over and over again is that it was only a remnant of Old Covenant Israel to be saved throughout Israel's history. She's utterly destroyed by her own uh, error and indifference and spiritual adultery, and only a remnant is saved over and over again. And Isaiah 49.6 is worth reading again here in light of uh, mentioning Cornelius' conversion. This is uh, from a servant song in Isaiah. It says, And he said, It is a light thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give you to be a light to the nations that you might be my salvation unto the end of the earth. And this agrees with the other prophecies that say that at the time Israel would be regathered, restored from a spiritually dead condition. At that time, the nations would be called in and made part of Israel. Uh, the light nations. And this is what these Judeans are seeing this prophecy be fulfilled, and yet they cannot accept it. They cannot believe it. Their inbred sense of superiority is so great, it's been reinforced over and over for 1,200 or more years. They just cannot hardly accept what they are seeing with their own eyes. I mean, they did eventually, but it's very hard. But for those Judeans who don't believe in in the, Jesus as Messiah, who haven't been there, they can never accept this. Cornelius stands as a preview of the idea of the God-fearing foreigner who has joined himself to the Judean synagogue community. Now, these people are somewhat rare or unnoticeable within Judea proper. Cornelius stands out. I mean, he loved the Judean nation. He understood that they were the chosen people of the one true God. And he devoted his life to their service. They, of course, repay this with indifference, arrogance, and so on. Just as Peter uh, evinced with his opening comment, you know that it is not right for me to be here. 
but understanding the uh, special import of the God-fearing foreigner to understanding the Bible is, is so essential. And we stressed some of the recent scholarship, particularly that of uh, Mark David Nanos, who uh, is a, a Jew in Texas, but who is a one of the foremost scholars on the synagogue life in the Roman Empire in the first century. And his scholarship has demonstrated that the Christians were a subset of these synagogue communities and that the people who believed the gospel in most of these synagogues outside of Judea and Galilee were God-fearers just as Cornelius is. So Cornelius is a very important preview to us of the massive audiences that Paul and Silas and Barnabas would run across in these synagogues, which would consist of a relatively small number of Judean families, and then a vast number of foreign families who had to, of course, sit in the back, uh, were not voting members of the synagogue, but who had been attaching themselves for decades and decades and bringing more to learn of the true God revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures, who stood out as so superior in every aspect to the pagan deities of the Greek and Roman world. And so you cannot understand the book of Acts. You cannot understand Paul's letters. And I would assert you cannot understand God's message of the Bible without paying a little bit of attention to the context of the synagogue communities and the hierarchy, so to speak, uh, with the Judean males running things, the women being uh, relegated to uh, a silent existence behind a side curtain and the foreigners being relegated to even uh, lesser station uh, way in the back. And for them to see the promised spirit fall upon Cornelius was a shock. So Peter gets over a shock and the whole 11th chapter is him having to explain this over and over again to the believing Judeans of Jerusalem who just do not want to believe it we get on into another persecution of the church in Judea. Perhaps it's because they are reluctant to believe what God is doing. They are then scattered, and we get the beginning of the church in Antioch of Syria, which is the first large mixed assembly of Judeans and foreigners, and they become the support base for the journeys of Paul and Silas and Barnabas into the far reaches of the empire. Again, in, in precise fulfillment of the specific plan that Christ laid out in Acts 1, which again flies in the face of our dispensational and Zionist friends who claim that God's original plan was thwarted and failed, that that plan was to set up a physical kingdom with Christ as the physical king to physically supplant the Roman Empire. You, we do not find any language in the book of Acts that would support the mythology that is the modern dispensational view. And so these chapters of Acts are so important to set the proper understanding of just how completely wrong the dispensational viewpoint is. These promises of Isaiah 
echo the song of Moses back in Deuteronomy 31 and 32, which is conveniently forgotten by nearly every religious group in America today. This is the prediction made by Yahweh himself through his servant Moses that in their last generation, Israel would utterly corrupt themselves and they would commit a crime so heinous that it could not be forgiven and there would be a terrible and horrible judgment which would indicate the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel and reveal their destiny which was to pass away in order to make room for the Messiah and his completely transformed spiritual Israel, his bride, and his everlasting reign and rule. We see no failure whatsoever in the book of Acts in fulfilling Israel's promises. We see God's plan working out exactly as promised from the Pentateuch, from the five books of Moses, all the way through the prophets, all the way through the Gospels. Christ enunciates their specific part of the plan in Acts 1, and they follow it with his guiding indwelling spirit, of course, exactly as we see. We do not see the myth of dispensationalism anywhere in the carrying out of this plan. And and forgive me if that sounds a bit harsh. We get down to Acts 13, where uh, Paul, uh, Saul has been renamed Paul. He's using his um, his Greek name because he is going out into the Greek and Roman world now as God's special ambassador uh, to them to bring about the fulfillment of the Song of Moses and Isaiah 49 and so on. And in Acts 13, we see him taking the forefront for the first time in lieu of uh, uh, Barnabas in this case. And we get this phenomenal lesson given in the synagogue in Uh, Antioch of Pisidia, which would be southeastern Turkey on our map today. And this, again, is a synagogue with a relatively small group of Judean families and then a huge group of, of believing foreigners, uncircumcised foreigners, foreigners who are not eating a, what we call today, a kosher diet, uh, according to the law of Moses. They are not circumcising their children but they are learning about the God of Israel. And we see this incredible address here, which is so overlooked by so many. Paul is demonstrating the gospel by recounting the promises God made to Old Covenant Israel. And he recaps their history and how they fail God over and over again. Then he talks about David and how that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of this promise made to David as part of the promises made to Old Covenant Israel. This throne of David was restored through Jesus of Nazareth. Not talking about something still thousands of years in the future, but he speaks of it as something that is happening right then and there in the first century, and that this is a great thing for all the people of Israel. And we see uh, him proclaiming the throne of David restored and meeting with rejection 
by the Judean people of that city. And yet on the next Sabbath day, the entire town virtually turned out to hear him because he had promised the good things promised to David, the sure mercies of David would now go to the nations. And these foreigners could be citizens of God's new Israel without having to follow the law of Moses, without having to undergo physical circumcision, without having to follow the physical dietary restraints found within the law. And this is going to set the pattern for all of Paul's work, and it's going to touch on things that he'll mention in his letters over and over again. So Acts 13, incredibly important there. And we see as he continues on, he he becomes the chief spokesman and the chief character from this point forward uh, in the book of Acts. And we see the pattern repeating itself in Acts 14 that the for the most part, the Judeans are provoked to rage and jealousy. In fact, they raise up a crowd and, uh, and stone Paul and presume him dead in Acts 14. And yet, in every town, he gets a great reception from the God-fearing foreigners, those who had been listening to and studying the Hebrew Scriptures and were ready for Messiah and his rule and his reign with open arms. In Chapter 15, we get the beginning of the great controversy where by the Judean believers try to come from Judea up into these other provinces of the empire and insist that the foreign converts submit to physical circumcision and submit to the law of Moses and and the dietary restrictions, and so on. And so we have the great conference in Jerusalem, which is uh, incredibly significant. We see James, the brother of Jesus, as one of the chief leaders of the believers in Jerusalem, standing up and basically saying that the foreigners are under no obligation whatsoever to follow the law of Moses, but he gives them a few suggestions. This is where... uh, Many or most uh, teachers and scholars miss the mark that they don't even address the idea that Judean believers should abandon the law of Moses and abandon circumcision. It's just assumed that they are included, and yet the language in Acts 15 is incredibly specific. These are these are suggestions for the foreign believers, the non-Judean believers only. And we we will see consistently throughout the rest of the book of Acts that the Judean believers are all, including Paul himself, at all times and in all places, no matter where they live, they are continuing to follow the law of Moses, as, as we pointed out, as corrected by Christ in his three years of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount is a good uh, example of that, trying to throw away all of the uh, false additions uh, of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Kabbalists, and so on. Um, and they continue to follow that, and Paul does himself. And, and again, Mark David Nanos 
does an excellent job in his works of demonstrating that this is the proper understanding of Paul's letters, that the Judeans are continuing to follow the law of Moses and the Gentiles are not and have no obligation whatsoever to do so. So Acts 15 is, is also a very significant part in the book. 16, travel uh, log, of phenomenal uh, story of, of uh, Lydia in Philippi, a woman who we don't know if she was a God-fearer or a Judean, but she creates a community of believers in her own household in a city in which there is no legally formed synagogue. And so a number of new precedents are established here with women taking a much greater responsibility in the new order of things than they ever could have had in the old physical uh, Israel. And the Philippian jailer and so on, a story that's familiar to us, and the journeys continue on. We didn't spend a lot of time on the travelogue because, of course, we would agree with uh, a lot of the scholarly commentary on the travels of Paul and so on in Athens in chapter 17 and then uh, in Corinth in chapter 18. And again here, the uh, Judeans rose up and created a huge riot trying to exterminate uh, Paul and the other believers uh, there And as the conflict continues. And then in 19, uh, Paul gets to Ephesus in Asia and is there for uh, a good yeah, two years. And uh, just by setting up a small daily teaching in the city of Ephesus, it caused the word, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ to be heard throughout the entire province of Asia to all of the Judeans and all the foreigners as well. And the seven churches of Asia are all a result of this work that is uh, described beginning in Acts 18 and 19. More examples here throughout 19. Paul leaves in 20 and, and begins his uh, last trip up to Jerusalem, and he's carrying with him offerings gathered in these predominantly foreign churches throughout the empire, offerings to take up to the brethren in Judea. And Paul was very, very concerned about this offering. In fact, in his Roman letter, we see him praying uh, or asking the Christians in Rome to pray that the Judean Christians will accept this offering from the foreigners because it, remember the arrogance that we started with, with with Peter the Judeans suffering famine and persecution them accepting help from a foreigner would show that this ingrained prejudice is starting to break down and it would also happen to fulfill Another one of the old promises to physical Israel, that in their last days, the wealth of the nations would flow into her. And so he starts his uh, journey back here, and then we find Luke giving all kinds of navigational trivia in 21, and Paul arriving in Jerusalem in 21. And here we see 
absolute confirmation of what I mentioned earlier, that the Judeans are all following the law of Moses, and they asked Paul to prove that he is also following the law of Moses, and he agrees without any argument whatsoever. So it's so important to accept this truth from the book of Acts that Paul and all the other Judeans are following the law of Moses, not to bring salvation on themselves, but to fulfill the law and to keep following it to the very end so that the righteous remnant that God had chosen that would be spared from the Holocaust, the all-consuming fire that's about to utterly destroy the Judean nation and culture, that, the, that this righteous remnant would be saved. And so the, the Judean believers are serving as perfect examples of what a true Israelite should be so that every last person foreordained to salvation would be pulled out before the nation is utterly destroyed. And this is uh, confirmed there as Paul gets there to Jerusalem and starts meeting with the leaders of the church there and then goes into the temple and so on. And then, of course, he's arrested. And then we spent the remainder of our time in the book of Acts going through all of Paul's defenses. There are so many important lessons, and then we did several topical studies because Paul, over and over in his trials, affirms that he has done absolutely nothing wrong and that he teaches nothing but the fulfillment of the promises made to the fathers, and he's speaking of the patriarchs of Israel. And he's including Genesis 12, the the dispensational proof text that the real estate in modern-day Palestine belongs to the government of Israel for some reason. But Paul is asserting that all of those promises, including Genesis 12, are being fulfilled spiritually through the ingathering of the nations and the transformation of Israel into a spiritual kingdom, which in Paul's mind, as we pointed out, is the resurrection. The, the transformation of Israel into a pure spiritual bride, into a perfect spiritual temple, to Paul that was the hope of Israel. That was the fulfillment of all the promises, including Genesis 12, and that included the resurrection, because as Christ told us, he who believes in me can never die. So the believers had already been granted eternal life or resurrection life as a fact, not as a distant hope or a far-off promise. And this, of course, differs with so many of the Protestant creeds and traditions and teachings, not only of the dispensational churches, but of the non-dispensational churches in America today. So again, I encourage everyone, if they haven't, to go back and listen to all of our lessons on the book of Acts and and just re-examine everything you've been taught. Re-examine creeds and statements of faith in light of of these truths that are demonstrated so effectively in Luke's writing by the words and actions of Peter and Paul and so on. All right, so We've got through the summary here. Any closing thoughts or comments from anyone? Mark, it was very interesting, your statement, 
that Paul proclaimed that the Gentile Christ followers did not need to go back and observe the practices of the Mosaic Law. Was that, did I hear you right? That was what we looked at at Acts 15, and, and yeah. Paul is just repeating after that the decision of the elders of the Judean church. Uh, they sent a letter, the entire church came to a consensus in Jerusalem, and they sent a letter saying that, no, you know, why would we impose this burden that is ours by birth on you who have no such obligation to it? We haven't been able to bear it, and we would never dream of imposing this on you. Okay, here's my question. It's about the uh, Messianic Church today, which is growing very fast. I've run it. I've had repeated contacts with them lately. I seem to just bump into Messianic churches. And, of course, they're going back to these old practices. They practice Purim. They practice the holidays. They practice uh, the Mosaic Law, the readings, the Arcus, and all of that. Is that not completely false, then, in terms of Paul's teachings? Well, I'm if they regard themselves as physical descendants of Jacob, they might have some claim, although I don't think anyone can really prove that. Generally, these are Christian churches that are being led into this. They often have Jewish leadership, but they don't have Jewish members. They tend to be non-Jewish Americans. Interesting to think about. Hey, Mark. Yes, I was wondering, you talked about the fulfillment of Genesis 12. I didn't quite understand that. Can you kind of repeat what Paul's saying here? Is that the Genesis 12 is fulfilled in Israel by the resurrection of Christ? Is that what you were saying? Yes. It's not stated you know, explicitly, but it is mentioned in Hebrews explicitly, which might have been written by Paul uh, as well where Abraham looked for a land or a city. In other words, uh, the letter to the Hebrews is explaining that the real estate promise to Abraham was understood by him to be something greater than real estate, something that was spiritual in intent. And all through the book of Acts, we find things like saying that all that has been written in the prophets, is being fulfilled before your very eyes. Peter says this in Acts 3, it's stated again in Acts 4, and then again in all of Paul's trials. He's saying, I'm preaching nothing but the hope of Israel. I'm preaching nothing but the resurrection. And so I'm putting this all together, that the physical land in the old Hebrew scriptures was a type and shadow of the spiritual land of Zion that is the object of Christ's passion, is the object of his purpose to create a perfect spiritual place where all these promises will be fulfilled. So mm-hmm. you, you have to kind of put all that together uh, mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. instead of going to one place. Right. Okay, uh, thanks. And to jump back to Chuck's question, I would just simply say to these Christians who are going back to these observances, I would just repeat what Paul wrote to the believers in Colossae, 
Let no man judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. And again, the timing is so important to understand the time statements because they were future to Paul when he wrote it, but they were imminent. So the only way this Messianic movement can justify going back to these holy days, new moons, Sabbaths, and dietary restrictions, which are stated by Paul to be a shadow of things to come, the reality is Christ. These were just types and shadows of Christ, who is the reality. They must still think that this fulfillment is still in the future. And yet, throughout the book of Acts, we see them stating that, that they are seeing them all fulfilled right before their very eyes. Where was that quote from, Mark? That is uh, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in uh, verse 16. Very good. Thank you so much. Well, thank everyone for the great interest that we've had, the participation. I do encourage you to look at the timeline. It's so important to understand the timing of all of these things and to understand that what was spoken of as future, as Paul is writing, became reality by the time that the old form, the the temple and the feasts and the priests, were utterly destroyed in complete fulfillment of the predictions of Moses and Isaiah and Hosea and Joel and John the Baptist. When this old physical form was completely obliterated, then the true spiritual form, which is Christ, became the only reality of man's relationship with God. It wasn't through a priest, it wasn't through a temple, it wasn't through a chosen people. It is through Christ. Christ is the sum of all spiritual truths. All of those old physical forms, part of old covenant Israel, are done away, and the only thing that exists now is Christ as the true and permanent spiritual reality, the mediator between God and man. And that's, of course, the whole rest of the story. So we'll continue to examine that in other letters and books of the Bible, hopefully. Great. Well, thank you, Mark. That was another excellent summary of uh, the book of Acts. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small think big, and press on towards the straight gate.